This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and joining me in studio today is Martina Jennings, who is the CEO of Mayo Roscommon Hospice. That's it, is that Stephanie. It? Mayo Roscommon Hospice Foundation. Yeah. Foundation, yes. Mm-hmm. I had to put, I didn't know if it was Roscommon Mayo, but I'm married to a Mayo man, so Mayo always has to come first. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, always. (laughs) So tell me about the foundation and the work that you do. And then I have some listener questions about hospice and palliative care and... Brilliant. Well, the foundation itself is 30 years old. So it was, it was founded in 1993 by a GP called Bert Farrell, who's no longer with us. But he was a GP in the community and he was looking at people at that stage, at their end of their lives, with no proper pain relief, no dignity, no respect. And he just saw a need for a hospice mm-hmm. service in Mayo and Roscommon. So himself and a few other really like-minded people got together. They... They formed some support groups and they started Mayo Roscommon Hospice Foundation effectively. And it started with one nurse and doctor at that stage. And it is now two community palliative care teams. So there's 12 of a team in Mayo. There's eight to nine of a team in Roscommon in the community. And we now also have two hospices. So we have a 14 bed unit in Mayo and an eight bed in Roscommon. Now they've both been built and opened in the last five years at a cost of 16.3 million, all coming from fundraised income. What? So they're yeah. not? No. They, so the so bills, what's the like government provision for hospice so like care? So we work in partnership with the HSE to be fair. So our, while we would have started off and the nurse and doctor would have been funded fully by the foundation. It has evolved over the years. So the community team, over the years, I should say. So the community teams now are 50% funded by the HSE and 50% funded by ourselves. So that's their salaries, their mileage, everything to do with the nurses on the road. And then with the hospices in Mayo, we fully funded the capital development. So as I said, that 16.5 million fully came from ourselves. Yes. And the Mayo Hospice is currently fully funded by the HSE. Okay. But should there come a shortfall in funding, which you're always kind of guaranteed with the HSE, you know, could be mm-hmm. good for three years and not so good, we are legally obliged to fund the shortfall, which we're fully committed to doing. Also, should the building need development, um, need maintenance or be expanded in the years to come, which it will do, we again are obliged to do that and we will do that. And how do people decide how do you, do you decide or how do hospitals decide who goes 
to the ho- to your hospice rather than another facility. Okay, so that's um, so I suppose the reason for the hospices in Mayo and Roscommon was there was no hospice facility, and while the you know most patients want to be looked after at home anyway. So, sorry, tell me just for really really basic, what is a hospice? Because I thought hospices are where people go to die, but mm. not everyone dies. No, they don't. They don't, Stephanie, at all. It's um, a hospice is, I suppose it's a holistic service, really. So you, you have your inpatient unit and you have your daycare services. But from the minute the patient goes in the front door, it's not just the patient, it's the patient and, and their, their family. family. Yeah, it really is. Because, you know, you could have a case where it's somebody, a young father or mother, who just haven't come to terms with the illness they have. Everybody has a life limited illnesses that you know that's, okay. that, that's a foregone conclusion it is life limiting they've been faced with the diagnosis that they're probably not prepared for but neither are the rest of the family you know these, these are they can be dark times and if nobody is talking to each other nobody is talking about what's happening to them it makes things an awful lot you know, harder on everyone involved. So it, you have your social worker, you have your occupational therapist, you have a physiotherapist, you have art therapy, all of these other services within the hospice walls. And I suppose the easiest way of explaining it is we we would have had a case in the last few months of um, a particular patient who just didn't come to terms with their diagnosis that mm-hmm. they were um it was terminal and neither did their family. But by the time they had left the hospice and they did leave to go home and they they didn't leave to go home and die. They weren't dying imminently, but it was somewhere down the road. They had um, speeches written for their children's weddings. The social worker had got them all to talk to each other about it. So they went home a much happier family than they came into the hospice because now everyone knows what's What's going on. Yeah. So in that case of that patient, how... Was that like an, a hospital person, like a doctor who kind of said, OK, we need to get this person into Mayor's Common Hospice? Mm. Like, um, yeah, so most referrals into the hospice would come through the GP, mm-hmm. the hospital team or our community team. And would it be, we need this person to come in just to come to terms with the diagnosis? Yeah, or? it can be for that or it could also be for pain management. So okay. their pain isn't quite being managed at home and it might take stay in the hospice for the whole team to look at them, the mm-hmm. consultant and the nurses. And, it, and you know, it is for end of life as well. And that, that's there, you, you know, and it is a place, I suppose when we were building the hospices, I would have gone and visited um, three or four hospices around mm-hmm. Ireland. So I would have gone to Our Ladies, St. Francis's and Blanchardstown and Galway Hospice. And the teams in all these hospices, it, the, the message was consistent. This building needed to be a home from home. It mm-hmm. needed to be something that would in, envelop the whole family the minute they go in the front door. And that's really what it does. But also one of the things I really learned was when people are at end of life or they're facing a life-limiting illness, they miss the basic things. So they miss nature, they miss rain, they miss um, just being with their family Mm -hmm. and the hospice gives them that chance to to do that. And it really is both hospices from the minute you go in, it's, um, they're happy places. They, they, They really are. The staff are incredible. They are only buildings without the staff and it's the staff that make it. And I would say that about the community team as well. These people, um, I am in awe of what they can do. They're they're incredible. And they they take the whole family and they can read a family like a book. They can read a patient like a book. They can dig into what's in, you know, what that patient is interested in. And by finding that out, 
they get them to talk. Um, we have uh, some questions from listeners and kind of following up on what you've said there, people saying like, you guys are human angels, like this needs to be funded because it just it changes how people mm. remember the death. And I do think it's so important, like how something ends so can be important. like you're left with that for the rest of your life. And it can be so traumatising if oh, it happens in a traumatic way. Absolutely. And, and like I always, one of the nurses said um, to me when I started in the foundation, they said the end of life is every bit as important as the beginning of life. Mm-hmm. And they're the two things we are guaranteed. So it has to be, it has to be treated with the utmost of dignity. So we have a good few questions. Some of them you might not be able to mm. um, answer and we can just move on That's from fine. those. Um can a person change their mind to die at home when receiving palliative care? Absolutely. Yeah, they can, if, if it's suitable. So um, generally people do want to, to want to pass away at home, but sometimes it depends on the illness and they may need to be in a hospital or the hospice. Okay. Um, my father passed away in Mayo Hospice last year. The staff were extraordinary. It was so peaceful. Um, no question, just a huge, massive thank you to them for what they're doing. Um what is your opinion on palliative care via morphine being a sort of a euthanasia situation? I'm not medical at all mm-hmm. I, 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 and I don't have a medical background, but I do know it's a question we have been asked before and I know it's not um, euthanasia at all. Yeah. You know, morphine can be reversed. I remember saying to when my Nana was in at uh, the end of uh, end of life stage, mm. she wasn't in a hospice because she, she was quite ill. She had to go into hospital. It was kind mm. of quick in the end. And she was under two doctors. One, uh, Dr. O'Fuelon, Sheeran, can't remember. He was the palliative care doctor. And then this other doctor, Dr. Rizwan, who was her doctor forever. Um, So he was trying to keep her alive. And the palliative care doctor was trying to keep her comfortable and like, you know, treat the end of life. And eventually I had to say to them, okay, the two of you here are trying to do two different things and I'm going to have to, like, we're going to have to go with one of you. So... We spoke to Nana and we spoke to the team and we just said, OK, Rizwan, you've done the best that you can for my grandmother, but we're going to go with Dr. Sheeran now mm-hmm. and, you know, we're going to move into end of life care. And she was in quite a lot of pain. And we were saying, like, can we can we increase the pain relief? Like, and uh, but <laughs> someone in, in, in the family had said, like, you know, can we just make this happen faster because it's awful? And <laughs> the nurse is like, we can't kill her. Like, we're not in the process of we can't give her more pain relief to make her die. That's not how it works. And we were like, no, 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 we're not looking for her to die. We just we just want her to not be in pain. But I think there is, people have a conceived idea that once people go onto a morphine pump, yeah. that's the end of it. Yeah. And like, the more you give, you can just kind of like, no. quietly no, let them that's pass. Not, and that's not, not the case. No, no, not at all. Um, what public fundraising versus private fundraising what keeps you going and like what are the costs to run oh, is it huge yeah we need to raise nearly 3 million a year so for um, you know the Roscommon Hospice is a bit different to the Mayo Hospice it's not fully funded at the moment so we're funding over 300,000 euro a year on that as well as our community team so we get our funds from our 12 charity shops we've 9 in Mayo and 3 in Roscommon community fundraising and major donors so that's how we do it During Covid was it really hard how did you allow families to kind of say goodbye to their loved It was the one time I would hold my hands up and say our nurses came to their fore. They were absolutely incredible. I mean, I think the first three weeks will live with me forever because we don't govern, clinically govern the service. We provide the funds and we make sure there's always funds there to keep it going. But the nurses provided a service that I never forget. And they were the one group of nurses that were nobody thought of for... um, 
the protective gear. Um, so they have no PPE. So I spent the first six weeks of COVID. I think I did about, worked out at 2,000 kilometres a week. I was collecting and delivering um, PPE gear to our nurses constantly, every day. And on Good Friday, I got a call from our ladies to say they had none either. So we got some from there as well. People were very generous with it. But it was, it was really hard. Yeah, it was difficult. But the nurses never dropped in their compassion, never dropped in their care. In fact, I would say, they came to the fore that time and our family therapist as well, she would say now she did her best work in COVID mm-hmm. because people came out of the woodwork that she would have dealt with them, would have closed off their issues a long time before. But because they were now alone and they weren't meeting people and didn't have anyone to talk to, she she made herself available to them. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, do you face a lot of challenges being in a rural rural west of Ireland offering home-based care? Do you offer home-based care? Yeah, we do. And um, Mayo is one of the biggest counties to do it. And we also have the islands. So, yeah, it, it's 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 a huge challenge because it's a seven-day service. And if you have somebody on a 24-hour morphine pump and at the weekends, you could have six of them at the weekend and only mm-hmm. three nurses. So it, it it's it's Under challenging. Pressure. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. How, I don't know if this is for you because you're not a medical, but how do you know if someone is ready for palliative care? That's a medical decision. It's a medical question. But the doctors, um, the GPs always know. They they always know and they always call it. And, you know, we get the stats every month from the referrals into our, into our palliative care. And the, very rarely is there ever an inappropriate referral, we would call, we would call it. But and is it possible to, like, volunteer in the area or to work in this area without like previous expertise or training or experience? Um, for voluntary, it, it's possible to volunteer in both hospices now. There is the guard, the vetting and there's training of and course, all that yeah. for that. And and we, we really need volunteers in our hospices. You can't manage a hospice without volunteer. What volunteers do, they, as well as helping out with vital jobs within the hospices, they give their time to patients. And, you know, sometimes that's all a patient wants. They just want somebody's time. Mm-hmm. You know, they may not have family. They may not have anyone else to talk to or they may be, may be more comfortable speaking to a stranger than a family member. And the volunteers are really highly trained at that. And is it possible to get into the, like, do you have to be a nurse to work in there or no. do you? No, um, as a volunteer. No, as a, like to oh, work yeah. in. Well, there would be all, yeah, highly skilled, highly trained um, palliative care staff. And yeah. are there non-trained, like, are, can you work there that isn't voluntary? As an admin, as yes. An ad- yeah. yeah, people work in admin, people work in the kitchen, people help out in the daycare services. So it's not all medical, but 90% will be medical. Yeah. yeah. Just taking a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Rockwell Financial. Rockwell Wealth Management are proud supporters of women in business. They support this podcast, they support me, and they want to support you too. They have a free consultation for basically listeners. This is the offer. You contact them, you tell them that you listen to the Basically podcast and they will give you a free one-to-one consultation to help you with your wealth management or any financial advice you need. When you're not feeling well or if you're in pain, getting medical treatment without delay is what matters. Matter Private has an emergency department at their hospital in Dublin and Cork where you can get access to emergency medical care quickly. I've used the service myself. The emergency department team was led by a consultant and they got me seen within 30 minutes of my arrival, which is their goal for all patients. And that means you can get whatever diagnostic tests you need without a delay, like a CT scan, an MRI scan, an ultrasound. And those results are fast tracked to help the medical team work out what was most suitable for your treatment. If you need to be admitted to the hospital, which I didn't, you will be seen as soon as possible by a consultant who specialises in your specific medical or surgical area of need. 
It's for over 16s only and they're open in Dublin Monday to Saturday 8am to 5pm and in Cork from Monday to Friday 9 to 5. See matterprivate.ie for more details on getting the specialist care you need as soon as possible. If you're not feeling well and you need medical treatment quickly, visit the emergency department at Matter Private Cork and Dublin. Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week you'll hear tales of mythic Irish gods, Arthurian knights or Norse Vikings. There is folklore from Ireland and around the world, and even historical legends like Brian Baru and Grainne Whale. Whether from poetry or prose, lyric or legend, if there is a good story at the heart of it, you'll find it here. I'm Kevin C. Olahan. I'm your host and fireside bard. With over 150 episodes and rising, there has never been a better time to join us by the fireside. How do you, like, are you in the hospices most days? And if so, what is it like for you or the other staff, like being around death so much and how do you kind of So for us in yourself? the foundation, we have our office, our head office is, is in Knock and the, that, that's been there for a few years because it's halfway between Mayo and Roscommon. And we don't, we don't go near, we're, we're based in the hospice two days a week in Mayo and two days a week in Roscommon, but we keep well away from the clinical side because yes, okay. that's their job and that's really where we shouldn't be. Yes. Um, what's the difference between hospice and palliative care? There is no difference, really. It's, okay. You know, we call our inpatient um, units hospices and the palliative care are our palliative care home care teams, but they both provide palliative, palliative care. care. Uh, when someone is in hospital and they want to go home, how long does organising palliative care take? It's very seamless and um, it can happen as, as quickly as it needs to happen for the patient. I, I have to say the hospital teams and the community teams work really well together and if somebody needs to get home and it may be only one night they need at home that everyone will get together and make sure that happens. happens. This isn't a question but please tell her how truly grateful people in the West of Ireland are for your organisation. Is it true that when you go into hospice you're dead within two weeks? Absolutely not. Wow. (laughs) From morphine? No. No. No, 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 so no. What did you say about the statistic about the amount of people so who leave? There's, um, it works out overall about 70% of people leave to go home. Um, so it's not always end of life. But peop- the hospices are also there for respite care. So somebody might be at home with a life-limiting illness and their carers may need a break and they may need to go into hospice. So they can go into the hospice for two weeks and come home again. Okay. That, that service is in both hospices. Um, ask Martina about running the New York City Marathon with no training for oh. charity. Sent in that question. Someone called Sinead. <laughs> yes. Um, well, that's a previous life. Um, by work, my my brother has cystic fibrosis. Okay. And um, we had an older brother who passed away from it. So a few years ago, Billy, who was my brother, um, had a lung transplant, had a double lung transplant in Newcastle. He would have been end of life at that stage. He was extremely ill. So when he came through, he vowed to do the New York City Marathon. He was diagnosed with um, diabetes about a month, maybe six weeks beforehand. So they really advised him against doing the full 26 miles and said they could, he could possibly do the last five. So I put my hand up and said, look, at, I'll do the marathon. Yeah, I'll do the first 21. You can join in and you finish it off. So, yeah, there was no training involved. We went to New York. It was out to Staten Island at five o'clock in the morning. 
Um, so I, I figured three things would get me through. I figured carbohydrates, so I had a load past it the night before. Um, I figured the crowds would get me through. And then I said, well, it's a great way to see New York. And it was, and I had, my, my fitness levels are not high at all. So um, I got to probably about mile 20 and I think it was the Washington Bridge or something and it was all uphill. And I thought, I'm never not going to do this. But I got there and got to mile 21. Billy joined in and I did the last five miles with him because, you know, I'd gone that far anyway. So I wanted to see him cross the line. Yeah, and we did it and he got the medal and I got, I don't know, shin splints for a week. Oh my God, So when we did it, yeah, it was great. Um, And I went back and did Kilimanjaro a year later. We were building a cystic fibrosis clinic at the time voluntarily in my own time. Which was harder? Um, oh, building the clinic, I would say, was harder. Oh, are you mean between, I mean, Kilimanjaro, between Kilimanjaro and, and the marathon? Um, there were both different experiences. I think the the New York marathon was extremely emotional because, uh, like this, uh, Billy had been dying a year beforehand. Mm-hmm. He was on swine flu. He he got swine flu and was on life support six weeks after he came home from his transplant and was not expected to live. And six months after that, he got a double brain hemorrhage and again was not expected to live. So to see him crossing the line was just... So emotional. Still get emotional. Yeah, and he's 37 now, has a two-month-old baby and is getting married this year. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it's it's been great. But that's through his own... He, you know, he's so determined and has such a great attitude. Yeah, he deserves all the goodness. Wow, sounds like an amazing man. Um, another question here. Have you seen a percentage... In, what is the percentage increase in demand over the last five years? It seems that there's so yes. many sick people now. A huge increase. Um, in particular, last year, we saw a dramatic increase in the referrals to the community teams. So generally, we the community teams will get about 25... In Mayo in particular, about 25 new patients a month. That went up to 52 patients on average last year. Any explanation as to why? No, I think, well, there is. I think COVID has something to do with it. You know, mm-hmm. people hadn't gone for treatments, hadn't got symptoms checked. We had a lot of young and terminal patients. And I mean, by young, I mean under 60. We we operate a family support scheme as well. Mm-hmm. So if there are families in financial difficulty due to having a, an illness in the family, the nurses would normally contact us and let us know what it is. And this is after you explore every state benefits. But I remember last Christmas, um, obviously the demand will be higher at Christmas for this. And I, I think we got 12 in one day and there was only one person over 60. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So quite an increase. Different. Yeah. Quite. It's sta- it's, it has stabilised so a bit this year. So it's not necessarily long COVID. It's not the impact of the oh, COVID no, virus. No, it's no. the fact the it's lockdowns the f- of the people it, yeah, not getting it's things treated. It's what COVID to. did to the system. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I should also say as well, um, people normally think that it's all cancer illnesses. And last year, 52% of our patients were non-cancer illnesses. So oh, there were motor neuron, multiple cirrhosis, COPD, heart, in stage heart failure. Um, do you have any plans to extend the new hospice in Roscommon? It's so fabulous. Well done. Yeah. Um, we, I think we'll probably be looking at that sooner rather than later. It's only open since February this year and the it has been operating at full capacity since three weeks after opening. So, yeah, we're always looking to expand. I mean, these services, these buildings are not going to meet the demand forever. So I think, yes, for us common sooner rather than we thought. Um Palliative care. So my understanding on this was that facilities like these are to be end of life. However, yeah, this is someone saying that they have had people leave 
They have. And I got a phone call from a gentleman last Christmas, um, just before we broke up for Christmas, who had gone into the hospice in a wheelchair and had walked home, walked out. Uh, He wasn't cured of his illness. They didn't perform a miracle cure. But between all of the services working together with occupational therapy and physiotherapy, they worked on him. And he is he was now at that stage walking independently, working independently and went home to, he said, I can't believe this is the Christmas I have ahead of me and it's all thanks to the staff. And would that be a case of like that man, he got Christmas, but then his illness, came, he came back but in. He's still to, alive. He's still alive. Oh, wow. um, but it's just that uh, with the illness he got that, you know, it did affect his muscles. So they just showed him how to use them in a different way. Okay. Yeah. And will, like, for, because they're all life limit, life limiting illnesses do people come back like they leave but then they come back yeah they just uh, get how like what I mean is so you come in you think you're dying mm. what like who what the medical team would talk to you and say actually we think that you have got a little bit more time. Do you want to stay here or do you want to leave or how does it yeah, work? Yeah, and I suppose this is a mixture of it. It's, it's probably more a medical question, but from talking to the nurses and doctors, because people get de- diagnosed with a life-limiting illness, they mm-hmm. do think they're dying immediately and it's not always the case. We have... Um, uh, John Joyce, he's a patient of ours who who speaks for us all the time and he's a great example. He was referred to palliative care probably, I think it's seven years ago now and John is doing really well okay. and our community nurse our palliative nurse still goes to see him um, he's still going for treatment but he's he's living his life really so, well But is he in the end of life stage for seven years or is it he's no, just not at all No he just has a, he just has an illness that is life limiting but not imminently dying Yeah, and there's a lot of illnesses like that as well so th- we're always trying to take the fear away from mm-hmm. from people that are referred to palliative care because the, the end of life stage isn't always imminent. In fact, most of the time it probably isn't. But what palliative care does, it helps you to live with the illness a lot better and it definitely gives you more comfort in your life. And more times than not, we've seen people say, why didn't I come sooner? Mm-hmm. You know, why did I put it off? It's I should fear, have come sooner. Yeah, it's fear. Yeah. Um, has every hospital a hospice care team? Most hospitals would at this stage. There would be some element of palliative care within most hospitals. And is that like, what are people doing who are like reaching end of life in the public system? Um, Well, there's no charge for um, palliative care, either in a hospice or community. It's the one service in this country that's absolutely free. And it makes no difference if you're a rich man or a pauper. Um, you are treated. Your 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 referral is taken based on your medical need. Needs. And, uh, yeah, and okay. it, it's completely free to everybody. That's an amazing uh, mm. service. Um, what else do you think we need to know? I I thought we had loads of questions, but most of them are people saying this isn't a question. She's amazing. My father died here. It was so peaceful. Like, sorry, that sounded like I was listing it off and making no, it no, trivial, I know but you're not. just a lot of people. Yeah. Sh- sh- yeah. outpouring their, their love for the service and oh, how it changed how, how and, they remember their And movement. I have to say you know we wouldn't be able to fund this service or provide it without the, without the generosity of people it amazes me every year that they come back after being after losing somebody um, and they come back and raise money for the service because of the impact the staff 
and the nurses have had on them. I think for what I'd love to say for palliative care in Ireland as a whole, we need more consistency. We need consistency across the whole country because we're blessed now in Mayo and Roscommon. We have an inpatient unit in both counties. We have a community team in both counties. They work seven days a week. They look after paediatrics as well as in, in the communities anyway, um, as well as adults. But that's not the case throughout the country. There's, there's okay. so many counties that don't have their own inpatient unit. And I think every county should have it without doubt. There are so many counties that don't have a seven day service. The, you know, there has to be consistency in this service. It is, as we said it earlier. So it's not a postcode lottery like No, of. it shouldn't be. It absolutely shouldn't be. And before I let you go, I have a question that's sort of adjacent to the main topic. But um, is this your first role as a CEO? Yes. How do you find it as being being a female CEO? Um I have to say it's one of the loneliest jobs in the world. I remember my last boss, who was a great CEO, he told me, he said it can be a lonely job. And it is because we're, you know, I have 47 staff in the foundation itself as Mm -hmm. well as the shop. So I I suppose I run the shops and the, the fundraising as a business because we're... I'm all into openness and transparency and governance. So everything we do, we cross every T and dot every I. And and to make sure we operate in that way can take difficult decisions and it can Mm -hmm. take changing people's mindsets. I found at the beginning very difficult because... Um, I suppose my brain works very logically. You know, do, do, do we have a policy? Do we have a procedure? And are we following it? And if we're not, why not? And, mm-hmm. you know, but but I couldn't do it without the staff we have. I have to say that they're amazing. And they're there because of they want to make sure we have this service in both our counties. Some of them are there for over 20 years and their, their experience is incredible. Um, as a female CEO, I can't say that I, I, I suppose it's not something I've given any thought to. Mm-hmm. The job takes up seven days a week. There's no doubt about it. I'm in the middle of a two week break now holiday and it's the first time I've taken two weeks off together in seven years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I needed it. Yeah, you, you get to the stage where, you, you know, you do get tired, but I absolutely love the job. I love it. I think your passion for it shows in it, like in how the foundation is thriving and also the response from people who, you know, like you, you're, you know, people come in and out through the doors, different families, but like their, your service is kind of like forever etched in their mind yeah. because how something ends really is important. Oh, it is. And, you know, ironically, my own mother passed away the month this, um, the foundation was founded 30 years ago and she was 48 at the time and her, the palliative, palliative care at that stage consisted of a man in a brown jumper coming into her ward in Galway Hospital in the room she had and doing, I don't know what he did, he just did a little crossover and that was it. So it, this service has changed. That's right, like, Yeah, oh, well, that okay. was palliative care um, 30 years ago. Look at how far we've come. If people are listening and they want to either know more, they want to support, they want to volunteer, where can they find you or get in touch? Well, please go to hospice.ie, www.hospice.ie or you can find us in NOC 09493 I know these numbers off the top of our heads. A shout out for NOC. Yeah, yeah. But we have, we're always running fundraising events. Our next big one is Coffee Morning in September. It's a big national one. I should say there's 26 hospice groups as well under the Together for Hospice umbrella and we all work together to make sure these national campaigns work for every Every hospice, hospice. not just ourselves. And I would plead to people, support your own local hospice. Mm -hmm. You you know, you will get this service when you need it and at the most time your family will need it. 
Thank you so much for Thank joining you. me. That is Martina Jennings from Mayo Common Hospice Foundation. And that is another episode of Basically. Thank you for listening. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahalo Gara. We are produced by Dan Wilcox and we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. See you next week. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.